Well, welcome everybody. We, uh, we're in the last week of our series. Uh, we're going through our vision statement to engage the spiritually hungry towards a life in Christ that is inspired, intelligent, and involved. It's been so fun this last few weeks to think about the kind of church that we want to be, the kind of church we're leaning into, the, recognizing the kind of church we're not quite yet. Um, but we're going to keep saying it. We're going to keep leaning into it until it becomes more and more who we are, that we're people, right, who engage with the spiritually hungry. Anyone who walks through this door, these doors, anyone that we encounter in the world, that we recognize that there are spiritually hungry people and we want to engage with them. We don't want to yell at them. We don't want to force them to, into our opinion, but we want to engage with them. We want to have human interaction with them and trust that the Holy Spirit is going to do this work in them. And as we engage with the spiritually hungry, we are on a path. And we have a unique path at our church. And at our church, it's towards Christ. We recognize that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He has offered grace and mercy to everybody through his death and resurrection. And we want to not only just know him, not only be saved, but to actually be formed and shaped by him. And then we've said the, the way this looks at is this holistic faith. It's a faith uh, in Christ that's inspired, right? That's this heartfelt devotion to Christ. It's not just a raw rawness, but it's, it's this heartfelt devotion to Christ. And it's intelligent. Last week, Art pre preached an incredible sermon about that, about we're people that we engage with our brains. We're smart people. We want to think and mind the depths of, the, of spirituality and theology to not be scared of better arguments. It was such a great sermon. And then this morning, we'll look at a faith that is involved. And I'm not going to lie, I'm a little bummed because Danielle was supposed to preach this, this week, and she, but she's at if. And so I got the tap. And of all the things of these, involved is the one that I'm actually the worst at, the one that, the, the, the weakest stool. And so I'm just going to confess early on that everything I have to say this morning is going to be mostly directed towards me. It's going to be really a hard sermon, but I think it's hard because God's messing with me in it. And so um, I don't know if you've heard of this guy, Frank Richardson, back um, in the black and white days. I, I forgot the date of this, but Co, you might recognize this guy. Uh, Frank Richardson, he was called the Cannonball Man. Have you seen this? Check out this little video. It's like 10 seconds long. Is that incredible? You're like, what does that have to do with anything? Well, I'm going to tell you. I think Frank Richardson, he's it. It's girding up. We are going to look at the hardest, worst, most challenging passage in all of Scripture. And it's not some weird passage of Scripture that's like in some um, pro prophet that you can't even pronounce their name. This is a teaching of Jesus that is so hard that I never want to look at it. And I kept being compelled to study it. And I'm like, oh, Gee, I guess we, this is the morning. So gird up. Just be like, here it comes. <laughs> Just be ready for it. If you know it's coming, I think it's cannonball, a cannonball is still going to knock you down. But if you're prepared for it, you're ready. So are you ready? Oh, you think you are. It's brutal. Grab a Bible. It's a long passage. In front of you, Matthew chapter 5. Why are you looking for that? Matthew chapter 5. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 25. So Matthew 5, right, is the Sermon on the Mount. Near the end of Jesus' life, this is called the Olivet Discourse. It's, it's, it's the message that Jesus uh, gave to disciples in the Mount of Olives. And basically, he's asking the question, he's saying this, I'm about to suffer and die, so be ready. But there will be a time when I'm going to come back and I'm going to fully establish my kingdom. And he, he says a, gives a, a series of parables saying this is what it's like, what you should be doing in this middle ground. And there's parables about being prepared, parables about being ready, about being watchful, about being good stewards. And then this last illustration, this last parable is a story about accountability. Yes. Do you love accountability? Jesus' accountability 
right before he dies, you know like he's not mincing words. So that's where we find ourselves, Matthew 25. We're going to start with 31. I'm going to read through the whole passage of Scripture. Let's read together. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and with all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, these are the sheepies, come, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance for the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will say, truly I tell you, that whatever you do to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you do to me. Then he'll say to those on the left, the goats, depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Told you, geared up. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you that whatever you have not done to the least of one of these, you did not do to me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Whew. I know, you can't even like chuckle awkwardly because it is a brutal passage of scripture. So before we get, jump into this passage of scripture, I think it's helpful to know Jesus, God's son, the Messiah, fully rooted in his Jewishness, fully rooted in the Judeo worldview. And the Judeo worldview is fully rooted in the scriptures, the Torah, and the prophets, and the writings. And for all of, Ju- uh, of Israel's history, they were rooted in God's revelation, that God made a unique covenant with the Jewish people. He revealed his character. He revealed his thoughts, his desires, his rules. And, uh, and the Jewish people have treated um, Torah and the writings and the prophets as sacred as God's revelation to them. And we're going to see throughout, just we're going to do a quick uh, run through of all the Old Testament. Yes, but it's only going to be five or three verses, I think. But in all of, of, of Scripture, it's interesting, right in the beginning, Genesis 1.27 says that you are made in the image of God. All humans, women and men together are made in the image of God. And unlike every other religion at that time, especially, right, where, where, where humans were the playthings of the gods, humans were these little peons that, uh, that the gods could just play with and, and, they, and were meaningless and had no significance. And God, Yahweh, reveals himself, says, no, you are not just scraps. You're, just, you're not throwaways. You are people and worthy of dignity. You're worthy of dignity. You are made in the image of God, women and men. For 5,000 years ago, or 8,000 years ago, I guess, right? That is a revolutionary concept. 
And that's in, and that's in Genesis. But right, in the, right after Genesis is the book of Deuteronomy, and there's all these teachings that, God, that Yahweh gives to his people. And I just picked out one. There's dozens and dozens, but there's this one in Deuteronomy chapter 15, 11. It says this, There will always be poor people in the land, and therefore I command, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. All throughout the Torah, there's these messages, there's these passages where he's, he's compelling God's people that you are to have a heart for the people who are poor and marginalized, oppressed, aliens and foreigners. Over and over again, verse after verse is compelling God. You say you're my people. Well, if you're my people, then you're going to have my heart. And my heart is to care for the poor and the needy, the foreigner, over and over and over again. After Deuteronomy, it's interesting, even later in the prophets, so we have a prophet Isaiah, and he says this, Is not this the king of fasting I have chosen? I'm sorry, is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen? And Isaiah is in this passage of, uh, where he's rebuking the people, right? The good Christian people, I mean, good religious people, they're trying to show the kind of noble people they are, the religious things that they're doing. And he's like, okay, great, you fast, but that's not the kind of fasting I've chosen. This is the kind of fasting I've chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and unite the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide for the poor, the poor wanderer with shelter when you see them naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. So you see in Genesis, you see in Deuteronomy, you see in Isaiah, you see also in the New Testament, right? We see Jesus, which we're going to take a look at in a second. And then you see in James, Jesus' brother, right? He, he makes this statement, which is so clear. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Pure religion, good religion. It's not just to be religious people, not to say no to certain things. That's part of it, right? We, we don't want to be stained by the world. But the reason why we don't want to be stained by the world is not so God doesn't zap us. It's so that our heart is open to the things of God, to the ways of God, to the values of God. And that, what does that pure religion look like? It's to care for the orphans and widows. And then Paul, and Paul always gets a bad rap for some reason because they always feel like he doesn't care. He just wants people to be saved and that's it. But even Paul in, in Galatians says this. And all they ask, so, so Paul is talking with the, with the council and they're, saying, and they're trying to negotiate this new theology, this theology for the Gentiles. And, 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 he, and he clarifies, he says, all they ask is that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing that I've been eager to do all along. So this Jewish faith is about caring for the poor. And as Jesus came, they cared for the poor. And then as Paul is taking that message to the Gentiles, they're saying, okay, but take that message to the Gentiles, but make sure you do not forget the poor. Paul's like, of course not. That is a hallmark of what it means to be a follower of Christ. So this idea that Jesus is talking about is not just a, a thing that he made up. It's not the end of his life. He's like, and I'm just going to like slap these guys around at the very end of my life. He is fully in line with the heart of God from the beginning of creation all the way until Jesus comes back. All right. That was the easy part. Okay, so now let's take a look at the actual passage, the sheep and the goats. And I think what's challenging about this is because it's not just a command. It's not just to do this or don't do this. It's an evidence of the kingdom, right? It's, I love it. It says, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you something to drink? Like the righteous and the unrighteous are like, when did we see those things? We didn't see those things. And Jesus is like, well, no, you did them. You either did them or didn't do because it's a fruit. It's, a, it's an evidence of the kingdom, which is a real challenge. But I want to start with this. Here's a simple truth. It begins like this. 
um, in verse three, I mean, verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, so we're talking about the kingdom of God. And as human beings, there's something fundamental about the way that we're wired that we know how to treat important people. We're great at it. We have like this sixth sense. We know who the, the powerful people are. We know who the people with status are. We know the people who can help our careers or help us socially. We know exactly who they are and we know how to treat them. And for some poor people who they just have no idea and they just struggle their whole life. But most of us know where the power dynamics are and how to get there. And um, a, a while ago, I got to go to Edmonton, Canada. I've never been to Canada before and Edmonton is in the boonies. You fly, I mean, it is in the customs. It's this farm country in the middle of nowhere and there's this tiny little covenant camp. And I was invited to do a little training with some youth pastors there. And I'm like, so I'm on a plane. I'm feeling like I'm so important because I'm on a plane, going to do a training in Edmonton. And I'm driving through the cuts, you know, from farm fields and farm fields and snow and in these little tiny houses. And I finally end up at this tiny little camp in the middle of nowhere. And all of my like Marin County judginess just kind of came on me. And I didn't know it at the time. Um, so I just lived into it, you know, and I was just like, look at these houses, look at these cars, look at these poor youth workers who are just living in the cuts of Canada. And, uh, and so we're all sitting around this table, we're all talking, and, uh, and in late, this guy Glenn walks in, and he seems kind of disheveled. It's winter, and uh, so everyone's wearing jackets and their head, you know, and you, and you have beanies on because it's like four degrees. And so you take off your beanie and your jacket, and you know, your clothes are all disheveled, and your hair is all disheveled, and this guy obviously hadn't shaved. And, and he's like all like talking at me like, like, I'm kind of an introvert, and I don't like people in my grill too much anyway, but he keeps talking at me. He keeps trying to, like, build rapport with me, and I'm like, what are you doing, man? He's like, oh, I know Jeff, and I know Art, and I'm like, oh, okay, great, everyone does. Like, it's okay. And, and, it's, and, it's, and it's going, like, and we're, and we're having this thing, and I had this weird sense where inside of me, I was kind of like, what is your deal, man? Like, back off. Still didn't realize what a jerk I, I am. I was going to say another thing, but... I was going to use the art word rectum there, but, um, and so all of a sudden though, as we're talking, it comes out that he's not some Yahoo 40 year old youth worker who's just a retread. He's actually the superintendent of the Canada conference. Like president superintendents, this guy's one of those guys. And I'm like, oh, and this wave of shame came over me. Because I'm like, I, I know how to talk to powerful people. I know how to talk to important people. And I'm totally blowing this guy off. And all of a sudden, I found myself playing catch up. And I'm like, oh, you're so interesting, Glenn. And I'm like asking him all these questions. And, uh, and, and I go and I, and I sat and, I, and, and that, whole, like, that whole disaster happened. And I, I went in bed that night and I just thought, oh, Lord, what an idiot am I? Because it's pretty rare to have such a turnaround. Like, I mean, I, I'm a jerk a lot, but I mean, to have a thing where I'm, like, I'm so confronted with, I so bent to status in that moment, it was horrifying to me. It's horrifying to Christ. We know how to talk to powerful people and we know how to talk to important people. And Jesus is like, yeah, and if I'm your king, you want to know who the most important people are? You want to know who the powerful people are? It's not the number two person in the denomination. It's the least of these. It's the poor, it's the hungry, it's the sick, it's the marginalized, it's those who are in prison, it's the people that our, that our culture has forgotten about. Those are the people that are important to Christ. What a horrible and awful realization. 
So we know how to treat important people. So what Jesus is saying, the way that you treat these important people, the way that you treat the people with status, the way that you treat when you're trying to jockey for position, that sort of intention, that sort of care, that sort of affection, that doesn't go, then treat the important people that I say that way. And what I love is that Christians, since the beginning of time, have taken on this mantle and they've taken it seriously. Christians have been this unique group of people who have intentionally looked around and said, who are the weak, weakest of these? Who are the least of these? And a lot of times, us, us, um, well, I'm going to say for me, I want to find as many ways to get out of this passage of Scripture as possible. So it says, truly I tell you, whatever you do for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you do for me. Okay. So it's the brothers and sisters of mine. So who, who do I need to treat this way? I can't treat all of humanity this way. Okay, so it's, it's Christians, right? The, the, the family of God, okay? And then we're in covenant. That's my family of God. And I look around, you guys are all beautiful. So, okay, I'm okay because I don't see any of those people here. So I guess I'm good to go. That's how like I see that passage of scripture. But Christians, even since early on, we're like, no, it's not just people in our tiny little group, not just people in our tiny little family, but it's actually the larger body of Christ, the total body of Christ. And you know what? It's not even just the total body of Christ. It's all of humanity, all of human beings who are made in the image of God, women and men made in the image of God, those are the people, the people who deserve intention and affection and care. And Christians have the ones that have done that. I don't know if you know this, but for all of human history, um, it's really hard to stay alive. And so people that were a tax on you to stay alive were discarded. Right? So if you had a baby and, uh, and they were deformed or they hurt your family system, right, that you would just let, put them out to be exposed and die. Um, the old, older people, you know, you say, walk into, the, walk into the forest until you die, right? It was just, it was, it was too hard and taxing. And yet Christians were like, even though it was a tax on them, Christians were the ones who would go and they would see babies left out on porches and to be, for exposure and they would grab them and bring them in. That they, they, they were the ones who would go to the leper colonies and see people who were, who were cast aside by society and they would go and care for them. It was Christians who started orphanages. It was Christians who started hospitals. Those things didn't just appear because all of a sudden people were like, yeah, we want to spend resources on people who are a drain on society and on, 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 on living. That's so hard to live. And yet Christians said, no, we are compelled by Christ to care for the least of these, the weakest of these, the people on the margins. They are important to Christ. In fact, they're not even important to Christ. Christ identifies himself with them. And so they run after them. Christians have always done that. I love, um, there's a guy, Bill Wilson, he began uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. He had this encounter with Christ. God transformed him and he began AA. AA began as a Christian organization, um, but now it has all these spiritual truths. But I mean, think of all the AAs, all the types of A's, right? There's a ton of them. That started because a Christian man said, you know what? There's this group of people who are struggling with addiction, and they need to be seen and they need to be cared for and made of space for them to have access to wholeness. Um, I love that, I mean, our, slavery is an awful thing. It's an awful smar on our nation's history. But slavery just didn't end. It ended because it was actually religious people. It was Christians. It was Christians who took the dignity of human beings seriously, who made a way to, to advocate for the abolition of slavery. And even before that, that became a legal thing, they put their own lives in jeopardy in order to make that happen. The civil rights movement in the 60s, that wasn't just a thing that just happened. That was a religious movement that happened um, in the African-American community in so many mainline churches that they partnered together, that, that the Civil Rights happened, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act of 1964, 1965. Those things happened because Christian people took seriously the call of God to see the weakest and poorest and marginalized among us. 
And that's our legacy. Those are our people. And it's in, in, in neutral, we, we flee from that. We run from that. We want comfort. We want status for our own. It is, it is hard work. And I'm going to say, this is all for me. It is hard work. But yet we read scripture. We move towards Christ. We read the whole canon of scripture because we can't avoid the passages of scripture that force us to look hard into these deeper issues and these deeper um, conversations. So this is where I think it gets extra hard. So we know how to treat important people, and we know that the important people for Christ are the weakest and poorest and most marginalized. And Jesus is funny because he doesn't just say, do this. Like, that'd be pretty easy to do. Do this, don't do this. But instead, right, he says, then the righteous will answer him, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? And what I think is so incredible and what we've been talking about in this whole idea of our vision statement is we are people that move towards Christ, that when we are connected to Christ, Jesus is the one who actually forms us and shapes us and changes us. I mean, I started out super judgmental and selfish and prideful and jerky. And my wife is like, you still have a ways to go. I get that. But that is our starting point. But by being connected to Christ, Christ through his Holy Spirit shapes us, informs us, causes fruit to happen within us. And there's values that happen within us as well. And so it's a little bit of a gut check because when you see the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized and the, you know, and you, and the people on the fringes and it doesn't stir you, it doesn't do anything to you and you just kind of can overlook them or look the other way, right? It's a good indicator like, oh, maybe I, there's a little more spiritual work to do. There's a little more work that God has to do in me to mold me and to shape me and to change me. And I can't, I mean, I've read this passage of scripture dozens and dozens of times this week and it's just overwhelming. Like I, every time I leave, I just go, oh my goodness, I am so far away from the man that God is longing me to be. I am so far away from these things being second nature in me because it's not about trying harder. It's about the Holy Spirit moving us and shaping us and transforming us to be these kinds of people. And so I don't know about you, but when I read a passage of scripture like this, that is so hard, that is so challenging, that is so convicting, because Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these, you've done to me. Whatever you have not done to the least of these, you have not done to me. I don't know about you, but when I read those things, I want, I want to look away. And I found there's actually kind of three postures that we have, three places that we look when we encounter this kind of conviction or guilt or however it might impact you. And one is this. For me, this is the one I go to. I want to look away. I've done a great job of making a life for myself. I've worked hard. I've made lots of right choices. I have the right friends. And so I've kind of insulated myself from daily having to interact with the margins of society because I've made lots of good choices. And so it's easy for me to look away I see, those, I see those passages of scriptures, but those are just types of people. They're not people that I actually have to interact with because I've made good choices. They haven't made good choices. And well, maybe God will get a hold of them. They'll make good choices, right? I found this way to justify my lack of interaction. So one way is to look away. The other thing we do, some people do, is, is that we look, we look up. And not look up towards God, but we look up to the people kind of one station above us. And we see the way that they treat us. And we're victims, 
And we go, we're marginalized. And, 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 and you don't understand, like, we, we need people to defend us and we see ourselves as the poorest and weakest among us. And so we look up and we shake our fists and we say, there's more powerful people that are doing it wrong. And we, wanna, and we think if we just yell loud and we like things on Facebook or post memes, then people will know and they'll hear us and they'll advocate for us. So we either look away or we look up. But both of those, we, we're still separating ourselves. We're not actually running after the people that God's called us to do. Or that we're finding coping mechanisms to deal with actually what's going on inside of us. But the third one is, is a little challenging. And that's how we look inside and we say, okay, God, have your way with me. Am I willing to go to the doctor and say, give me the full scan. How really is my cholesterol? How's my heart? How's my health? How's my body? How am I really doing? Give it all to me. And God desperately wants us to give it all. Like he wants to say, let me tell you exactly what's going on. And if you're not where you're supposed to be, like that's okay. Nobody is. But are you willing to say, God, have your way with me. Don't let me look away from hard passages of scripture. Don't let me look away from things that are too convicting. Let me just take that and offer myself to you to have your way with me. So I have two quick things I want to share. One is this, that it begins with a change of posture. I think it's hard. We don't all naturally jump in um, and do things well. Um, and so it has to begin with kind of a, a change in our posture, a change in which we look. I found this picture of these beautiful young ladies because I think what I'm going to say is a little bit hard and these guys are like, it's going to be okay. Um, but it, it's a change of posture. Like, and so what I mean by that is to recognize that you have been given gifts by God, that you've been given privilege and power and status. Now, maybe not as much as you want, and I'm sure that you've been victimized and taken advantage of and been crushed by certain people and things and systems in your life. That is a for sure reality. But it's weird when you look at scripture, Jesus is never saying your job is to confront the people right above you. I think the whole world would fall apart if, we, if our whole job was to confront the people right above us. That's kind of our cultural stance and that's why nothing is happening. But what would it be like if we change our posture to recognize every single one of us has influence, resources, privilege, and power? Not for everything, but for some things. And then to leverage that for the weakest and poorest among us. Or even for the people just right below us. Think of the people that you work with. At the people that you work with, most likely you're not the bottom rung at the people, with the people you work with. In the neighborhood you live, in the culture, in, the, in, in your town, there are people right below you that need your care, your advocacy, people to be seen. And how cool, when you identify with them, when you see them, when you care for them, you're doing that to Christ. Like you love Jesus, you want to love him when you do those things for Christ. I mean, for them, you're doing it for Christ. It's an act of worship. It's, it's an act of knitting your heart to them. So one is that it's a change of posture that is that recognizing that we all have power and we all have privilege and we need to leverage it, not to fight upstream, but to care for the people um, below us. Now, some people in this room, and, I, and including me, right, that we actually are in positions of power. Like we have real power. For this little organization, I have real power. For there's some of you, because of your financial situation or your, or your organizational structure, you actually have real power. And so for you, maybe God really is inviting you to leverage your real power to care for the broken system that you've inherited. 
We've all inherited broken systems because we live in a broken world. And so there's certain ways that, that things have been established, good and for bad. And some of us are better at maneuvering those and managing those and taking advantage of those. And we kind of can rise to the top of them. And there's some people, those systems actually crush them. There, there's no on-ramp for them. There's no access for them. But we don't even know because they're just not part of our system at all. And so maybe we, um, in positions of power, need to make space and adjust our system to have space for other people Maybe that system needs to be totally blown up. This is a, not really an emotionally charged one, so I'm going to just give you an example of this. Our, our students go to Chick to Tennessee um, once, once every three years, and it's this incredible conference. 5,000 kids, they show up. It's bonkers, and it costs us 1,500 bucks to get there, and 5,000 kids there, and it is incredible. And yet, every time Chick happens, all the denominational leaders get together, and they scratch their heads, and they just are brokenhearted because so few Poor and minority students attend Chick. Shocker. $1,500 to Tennessee. What's going on here? And, and, they, and, and, and they're trying to make the system better, right? They're trying to make resources available, and they're trying to change the content so it's more and more available. But what's interesting is this, it's a system that began with a great idea, and the system that began from a great idea was this group of kids from Minnesota who love going to camp and said, camp is so fun. What if we got more people to go? What if we extended camp and made, you had all the churches go to camp? Oh, great. What if we made, not just have some, you know, hokey camp speaker, but what if we had great speakers, not just hokey camp music, great music. And all of a sudden, this little hokey camp thing over 50 years has become this giant, enormous thing called Chick, which is incredible. But you know what? Inner city kids don't go to camp, ever. Hispanic kids don't leave their families. And yet, so we're wondering, why is this not working, right? It's a system for good, but in that system, there's people who aren't, getting, who aren't getting to be a part of it. Does that kind of make sense? So that's just a, it's a system. So when people talk about systemic injustice or systemic oppression or systemic racism, a lot of times um, people like gird up and they go, whoa, what's the problem? What are, you, are you judging me? What they're trying to say, and sometimes they are saying it in a mean way, but really what they're trying to say is simply there's a system that was established, good or for ill, and that system, the ill part is keeping people away. And we in positions of power need to intentionally think to, to change those systems so people who have not had access now have access. Sometimes it's blowing up the whole thing, but mostly it's just changing things along the way slowly and surely. Okay, the last thing is this. It's just my gentle pastoral word. I even made a nice little picture. This is a really hard passage of scripture. But I think we want to take Jesus seriously. We want to take Jesus' words seriously. But we take him seriously not because we're scared of eternal punishment. We're not scared of Jesus' rebuke. We're not scared of Jesus' anger. Truthfully, I think we should, be, we should be challenged by this because we love him. And we want to love the things that Jesus loves. We want to be changed by the things that, that Jesus longs for us to be changed by. And when he has hard things to say, we want to say, okay, God, have your way with me. And I love this little picture of this tiny little seed because transformation is this growth thing. You're not going to one day be a total jerk and all of a sudden be the most generous, empathetic person on the planet who just sees everybody and leverages all their will to change the world. Um, this last week, um, Oak and Michelle Smith invited some of our, our pastoral team to go to San Quentin Prison and hear Bob Goff speak. And if you don't know who he is, he's this, he's this brilliant lawyer who did incredible work, who made a ton of money and has leveraged all of his resources in the end of his life to advocate for the weakest and poorest among us. He's incredible. You should read his book, Love Does. 
little, little plug. I don't get any, any pushback for that. I mean, I don't get any royalties for that. <laughs> and yet, at prison, at San Quentin, he's just this old guy. All those people in prison have no idea who Bob Goff is, have no idea what this book Love Does is, and could care less. But what was so powerful about him is, A, that he made space in his time for all the bazillionaire things that he gets to do and got to go and spend a day with these prisoners. And he spoke in a way that gave them dignity and spoke life into them. He had time at the end, and he didn't have a ton of time because there was like hundreds of people in the room. But even for 10 seconds, he didn't look over the shoulder of one person to see the next person, look over the shoulder of the next person. He saw each person. He listened to them, spoke words of dignity to them, and moved on. Right? We can't change the whole criminal justice system. Maybe that is the thing that God called you to do. But we do need to be people that move towards Christ to see people, to have empathy for people, to leverage our resources for people. Because it's not just for people. We do those as if we're doing them to Christ. And then we truly get to be the testimony that God longs for us to be. If we're going to be these people who engage with the spiritually hungry towards a life in Christ, that life in Christ has to be inspired and intelligent. But if it's not involved, it's meaningless. So may God have mercy on us. May God compel us. May God transform us for his glory. All right, would you guys stand with me? Um, let me pray for us. My guys, if you put your hands open like this, I'm going to offer a short prayer. I know I'm a minute over. Sorry about that. Um, let me offer a short prayer, and then we'll, we'll end with the Lord's Prayer. Heavenly Father and our gracious God, I thank you that you are so patient and long-suffering with me, with us, with your knuckle-headed church. I thank you that there's been Christians who have gone before us, who have modeled this, who have worked at it, who have transformed cultures and societies and systems, and we long to be part of that movement. So whatever sort of guilt or shame or rebuke that I feel or you may feel, let us not look away, let us not blame others, but let us allow you to have full access to us. Have your way with us, Jesus. Change us and transform us so that we can be a church that gives you honor and glory as we see the weakest and poorest and marginalized among us and treat them the way we would treat you if you were sitting down in front of us.